From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Gunshots ring out yet again at another high school in Colorado. As students and parents call for change, we'll revisit the ongoing discussion about school safety and whether the absence of resource officers might have played a role at East High School. Then, Colorado is among a select number of states that requires doctors to notify patients if they have dense breast tissue, which could help detect breast cancer earlier, saving lives. The challenge is that a mammogram is a good test for some women, and it's not such a good test for other women. And later, a soccer club that empowers Latino and Latina student athletes to get their footing on the field. Uh, I feel like everyone gets treated the same. And it's also about using sports as a gateway to a free college education. CPR leadership partners help bring inspiring music and fact-based news to everyone through gifts of $10,000 or more. If you're interested in joining this group of dedicated supporters, come to CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Denver Public Schools Superintendent Alex Marrero says there will be two armed police officers at East High School for the remainder of the year. The announcement is welcome news for students and parents who are scared, frustrated, and angry after a 17-year-old student shot and wounded two school administrators Wednesday. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine spoke with parents and students outside the school after the shooting. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Chandra. The suspect had to take part in a daily pat-down before he was allowed to enter the school, and he was on what's called a safety plan, but officials have not yet elaborated on that. Police say he shot the two deans during the pat-down process, then fled the school. The rest of the school was locked down for a couple of hours, but students and parents were already on edge because there was recently another incident at East? Yeah, last month a 16-year-old was shot outside the school. He eventually died earlier in the school year. There was also a shooting that injured an East High student outside the nearby Carla Madison Recreation Center. Before the students were let out of the school, parents waited outside yellow police tape. What was the scene like? The mayor, Michael Hancock, and Denver Police Chief Ron Thomas were there, and the parents became quite angry. They shared their frustrations about the violence and continual lockdowns at the school. How can they possibly learn? They can't. And, that's what I want to know. and then there's no information. So these kids are sitting in these classrooms for hours and hours, not knowing if they're waiting for someone to come to the classroom and shoot them or what's going on. And, and, and the parents help. get no information whatsoever. None. The and only message we got is that they were preliminarily locked down for something. So one frustration is lack of communication. Many say not knowing exactly what's happening during an incident causes unnecessary stress for students, teachers, and parents. What did Denver Public School District officials say about that? DPS says they're limited in what they can say during an incident. Police don't want DPS to say anything that could compromise the investigation. For example, they can't come right out and say all kids are safe because if the police haven't completely swept the building, that would give people a false sense of security. Denver mm. Police Chief Ron Thomas had a calm demeanor as he listened to frustrated parent after frustrated parent. And that's why I want to, to continue to be here so that I can uh, uh, make sure that they feel heard and make sure that they know that I understand 
their 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 concerns and their fears. Jenny, many people had other many parents, I should say, had other questions. What were some of them? Well, the main one was that they wondered why there was no police officer in the school at the time of yesterday's shooting. Some parents weren't aware that the school board in 2020 voted to end all SROs. That stands for school resource officers, all SRO contracts with the Denver Police Department. Now, why were they voted out of schools? The most recent push came after the nationwide protests against police violence after the death of George Floyd. But the movement to take them out of schools really began many years ago, pushed by community groups like Movimiento Poder. Um, It's a Latino community group. SROs were seen as contributing to the school to prison pipeline. Now, what does that exactly mean? Well, media investigations across the country have shown that when police were in schools and there was student misbehavior or disruptions, black and Latino youth were more likely to get citations or be arrested. And in some cases, that meant costly court hearings for things like littering, being too noisy, or even having a vape pen. Hmm. Now, yesterday, Mayor Michael Hancock issued a statement saying it's time to bring those resource officers back to schools. Now, that was followed by DPS superintendent, the DPS superintendent asking for two officers to be stationed at East for the rest of the year and one at each comprehensive high school. What did some of the East High School kids you talked with think about bringing them back? Yeah, the ones I talked to were definitely supportive of it. Junior Malachi Washington says he's okay without them, but he sees freshmen in particular are having a really hard time emotionally dealing with incidents like this. For sure, I would support bringing those officers in here at least to help just keep everybody together, help by keep their emotions together. Two friends, Gavin Worley and Champ Gonzalez, support bringing back officers too. I also asked them if metal detectors would make them feel safe. If there's metal detectors, they're going to be able to detect guns. But at the same time, like when I'm going through a metal detector to go to school, it just feels like I'm like kind of like going to like prison almost. It's like kind of like, wow, like this is what we've came to. I never wanted to believe that metal detectors would be the way to do it. I feel like sometimes as a community, we could change, make the better place for safer place for people. But yeah, at this point, we definitely do need some to like catch things like this or this is just going to be a continuous state. Teachers and others have argued for years that schools are chronically underfunded when it comes to being able to hire mental health staff or just enough adults in the building to ensure safety. While many students were scared and some were crying, it was kind of shocking to me how in stride many took this. Here's 16-year-old Anaya Koger. It's weird. I feel fine, but I know I shouldn't. I think at this point I might just be desensitized, and I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. I know that it's not normal. I shouldn't be used to it. But every time I walk in, I wonder if anything's going to happen to me. But I I try to reassure myself. But really, I'm just uncertain all the time. Wow. For the older kids, I imagine they've been through bomb threats, countless lockdowns. It's pretty much all they've ever known. Yeah, it was heartbreaking to listen to them uh, that this is the world we've given them. Kids were angry, too. The incidents have left some mulling whether to leave the school. Here's junior Laird Whitelaw. In all honesty, I think kids are kind of done. There was a lot of talk, like people were saying, I wonder how many kids are going to transfer out. A lot of parent phone calls. One of my friends said her mom literally had the application for another school pulled up today. And I think it's just ridiculous that this is, what, like four weeks after Luis and... Obviously, we have no like police presence, and I don't know, there's not a lot of protection. And for something like that to happen where adults 
like faculty get shot means that the students aren't safe, the adults aren't safe, and it's just kind of, I wonder who's going to stay. He says his friends are at the school, so he'll probably stay, but his mom wants him out. Uh, Whitelaw remembers when a police officer was stationed for a while at East after Luis Garcia was shot. He says he felt safer, and kids were more respectful, too. I ran into other families. One was considering returning their two students to a school they'd previously attended. They did say a shooting could happen anywhere, but they felt particularly at East with its open campus, doors that are often open, and given the events of the year, they, they don't feel safe. Mm. Well, definitely an issue that we will, be, we will be watching for quite some time. Thank you, Jenny. You're welcome. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine, one of the deans who was shot, Gerald Mason, has been released from the hospital. The other, Eric Sinclair, is in serious condition after under, undergoing surgery. The student suspect was found dead near his car late yesterday in Park County. Stay with CPR News for ongoing coverage of the shooting at East High School on air and online at CPR.org and Denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andy Kenny from the CPR Newsroom. The state legislature is in session, and that means so is the CPR politics podcast, Purplish. Everywhere you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. March is Women's History Month, a time to not only reflect on the historic and ongoing contributions of women, but also a time to hone in on many of the important issues facing women. One of those is breast cancer, awareness, detection, and prevention. Colorado is among nearly 40 states that require doctors to notify patients about their breast density. Dense breast tissue could play a role in detecting and treating breast cancer. Dr. Gretchen Arendt is with the University of Colorado Cancer Center on the Anschutz campus. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Chandra, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's put this into some context. Then Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper signed the Dense Breast Reporting Bill on April 6, 2017. It made our state number 29 on the growing list of states joining density reporting laws across the country. Dr. Arendt, Why is this so important in terms of managing personal health and wellness, and also on a larger scale, looking at this from a public health standpoint? So that is an excellent question. Screening mammography has been recommended for several decades in order to detect breast cancer at the earliest possible stage when we have the best chance of curing it. And the cure rate for early stage breast cancer, particularly stage zero or one is well over 95%. The challenge is that a mammogram is not the same test for all women. And the ability of a mammogram to detect breast cancer early depends on a woman's breast density. And many women don't know what their breast density is. In the specialty of breast oncology, we think of four different categories of breast density. There's very low breast density, and then very high breast density, and then two categories in between. And for women who have the highest categories of breast density, a mammogram has a much harder time detecting breast cancer early because the cancer can be obscured by that dense tissue. So the breast density legislation requires the facility that performs the mammogram not only to tell a woman her mammogram is negative, but to alert her if she has the higher categories of breast density that 
the test may not be the best test to identify breast cancer, and she should talk to her physician about whether any additional testing would be warranted. Mm. I think the legislation really empowers women to have a better understanding of the accuracy of a mammogram for their personal health. Yes. And when you think about this, you know, there's a lot of talk about getting a mammogram. And so I'm sure there's a sense of of us going in and saying, hey, I did my part. I got a mammogram and uh, it said it was negative and, you know, yay me. But to find out that you could actually have it and not and it not be detected because of your breast tissue is, you know, pretty concerning. I think that comes as a surprise to some women. Uh, the other important factor relating to breast density is that it's actually a risk factor for developing breast cancer. Mm. So women who have denser breast tissue have a higher risk of developing breast cancer than women who have less dense tissue. So by alerting women that they have dense breasts, they can talk to their doctor and they can talk to a specialist if needed to get an understanding of how their breast density affects their lifetime risk of breast cancer. And we spend a lot of time with women who don't have breast cancer but have a variety of risk factors, whether it's their family history or they've had a biopsy that shows something that may change their risk. But we can sit down with a woman, analyze her risk factors, and determine not only what her risk of getting breast cancer is, but then advise her what additional testing above and beyond a mammogram might benefit her. Now, I'm going to ask you about that testing, but first, walk us through this process. How would someone be made aware of their status that they have dense breast tissue? And would this only be discovered after a mammogram had taken place? Or are there other ways to determine this? Truthfully, a mammogram is the most objective way to assess uh, breast density. Uh, a physical examination, when you go in for your annual checkup and your doctor performs a breast exam, you can perhaps get a sense of breast density, but it's not going to be objective like a mammogram. Mm. So before having a mammogram, you really wouldn't know what your breast density is. Let's talk a little bit about the notification process. How would someone generally be notified by their doctor's office or the medical facility? Would this be like a letter, or an email? Would the insurance company send it? So mammography facilities are required by law to give women their mammogram results in writing. Nowadays, many mammogram reports are released electronically, but mm -hmm. patients still get a mailed copy of their mammogram report. And it's important to read the entire report because in the body of the report, it will state whether the tissue is dense and mm -hmm. whether the patient should talk to their physician about additional testing. So if someone only looks at the top of their report and sees that their mammogram is negative and they don't read all the way through, they may not pick up on the fact that they also have dense breasts. And a negative mammogram, while that's good news, it may not be a great test for detecting cancer. Well, I have to admit that this stood out to me as a topic because I did get notification in the form of a letter. And I'll admit it was interesting and it was news to me, but there was sort of this sense of like, what next? Okay, thanks for sharing. You know, like, what does this mean? 
And it felt more like a disclaimer, like, hey, if you get cancer, we just wanted to, you know, be clear that, you know, you could still get this or you may still have it. It felt more like that. So you get this letter and like, what is a person supposed to do? I got the letter. And do you follow up? Do you call your doctor? Do you request other tests? I think it's hard for an individual to directly request other tests because somebody needs to actually order the test. Mm -hmm. A woman can request a screening mammogram without an order from a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. But any higher level breast imaging test, for example, breast MRI is one of the tools that we might use as a supplemental screening tool in someone who has dense breasts. An order has to be placed for that by a physician or an advanced practice provider. So a woman who gets their mammogram report informing them they have dense tissue, I would advise them to speak to their primary care physician or their gynecologist who may have ordered the test. Whoever ordered the test for them would be the first person to go to, to say, I received this letter. I'm informed that I have dense breast tissue. What do I do next? There are also breast centers. Uh, Of course, here at University of Colorado, we have dedicated breast centers. Patients can refer themselves to a breast center to speak to a specialist who will sit down, determine how their breast density affects their risk of breast cancer, and give some guidance in terms of what additional testing might be helpful for you. Breast MRI and screening breast ultrasound are two potential higher-level breast imaging tests that we can discuss that may be helpful to supplement their mammogram. You mentioned these higher level tests. I spoke with Christina Soames, who is a breast cancer survivor. She's also on the board of directors for the Colorado Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. It helps provide financial support for those in the midst of breast cancer treatment. She told me those higher level tests that you just referenced help save her life. In my own case, They said, you have dense breast tissue, only 10% of this is going to come back as cancer. So I don't think you have anything to worry about. And I don't have any breast cancer history in my family. So I was like, okay, you know, do a biopsy, do whatever you need to do. And so I was 100% expecting it to come back as not as breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So when the surgeon that did the biopsy called me back to say, you do have breast cancer. I was driving my car and I almost wrecked my car because I was so shocked and so stunned. What age were you uh, at this time? So I was 49, but there's plenty of women like in my support group or that we're writing grants to that are under the age of 35. You know, we have grant recipients that have five kids. They're early 40s. We just had a a woman that applied for a grant that's, you know, 35 with two kids under the age of three. So there's so many younger women getting breast cancer. And those women have a little bit more trouble because they're not supposedly at the age to be getting breast cancer. Mm. You know, if they don't have a lump, you're not supposed to have a mammogram until you're 40. If they don't have a lump, then there's no testing. So you obviously got the biopsy. It was determined you did have cancer. And what happened after that? So then I had um, surgery and they did a lumpectomy. And then they had to do another lumpectomy because my margins weren't clear 
and then I started radiation. And a lumpectomy is when they just remove that portion of like a tumor? Yes. I, because I was out of Anschutz, I was very lucky that I got a brand new test at the time that was a genetic test. I was supposed to do chemo and I was all set up to do chemo. And actually I was listening to NPR and I heard this whole segment on this test. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I called my oncologist and I said, what is mama printing? Can I get mama printed? And he said, how do you know about mama printing? And I said, well, I just listened to it on NPR. Wow. (laughs) And so I got the test, which allowed me not to have chemo. But if I hadn't gotten that test, I would have had chemo. And what exactly is mama printing? It's a genetic test that was very new. So I'm a five-year survivor. So at that time, it was a very new test that insurance companies definitely weren't paying for. But it's like a 72 gene test that is much more accurate than the other genetic testing they do. And just to be clear, you are considered one of those people to have dense breast tissue? Yes. So what is your advice for someone who either is going to get a mammogram or who has gotten one and are informed, yes, you have uh, dense breast tissue. What do you want them to do with that information? I mean, you have to ask a lot of questions. You know, if somebody gets notified of that, absolutely call your primary care physician and say, you know, I'd like an explanation of this. I want to know, is there anything else I need to do? You have to advocate for yourself. And the thing is, is like, because somebody is telling you that you need more tests or you don't need more tests or you have breast cancer, when you start going through treatment, you have to feel very comfortable and very confident that your oncologist knows what they're doing because you don't know, you know, you're not in the medical field. So it's so important to like, feel like you 100% trust the, you know, the medical personnel that are making the decisions for you because you have to listen to like what their treatment plan is, what their ideas are, what this, how it goes. But the biggest thing is to ask more questions once you get that notification. Really insightful reflections. Doctor, let's get back to talking about the insurance aspect. Are you familiar with the rights of a patient? I know you said it's very difficult for an individual to just call the insurance company and say, I want these tests. Um, Are there any rights that you have as a patient or is this really more of a discussion you have with your doctor that may or may not turn into a discussion with your insurance company? So that's always the, the challenge because when we go beyond a mammogram, the cost of testing starts to escalate. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's very helpful to have a formal breast cancer risk assessment completed where you know we can take into account the patient's age, her family history, her breast density, uh, her reproductive history. These are all factors that influence the likelihood of developing breast cancer. If a woman's lifetime risk of getting breast cancer exceeds 20%, and I will just state that you know all women have about a 15% chance of getting breast cancer. So 20% is higher than the risk that all women face. That's the typical threshold where we will consider supplemental screening. If we document that someone's lifetime risk is greater than 20%, 
then we can order an MRI or a screening ultrasound, whichever test we feel is the next best step, and submit it to insurance for authorization. Many insurance plans will authorize the test based on this risk assessment and lifetime risk calculation. If they deny the request, generally the physician or the PA or nurse practitioner can appeal that denial. And in many cases, it's really all about appropriate documentation. Have we done our diligence in documenting why this patient will benefit from higher risk screening? And in my experience, uh, most insurance companies will approve these tests if we've gone through an appeal process with the appropriate documentation. Doctor, is there any other advice you can offer for a person who receives notification that they have dense breast tissue? I think one important piece of advice, there's really actually two things I'd like to say. First is that don't think that that mammogram can't help you. Even in women who have dense breasts, there are changes that we can pick up that would be a concern for early breast cancer. So we wouldn't throw the mammogram out in someone with dense breasts because it can still be helpful. It's just that it may not be a good standalone test. The other important thing is that continue to be aware of what's normal for you. And so knowing what your breast texture is and knowing what's normal will help you figure out if there is a new lump or a new change in texture. And if you just had a normal mammogram, but you feel something, don't ignore that because it just mm -hmm. might be that the mammogram didn't show it because of the density. And you should get in touch with your doctor so they can help figure out what additional testing should be done to evaluate what you're feeling. Doctor, before we wrap up, the FDA this month released new mammography guidelines. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So we talked about how many states have passed uh, breast density legislation. In 2019, Congress actually passed breast density legislation that would give the Food and Drug Administration authority to regulate mammography facilities and reporting of breast density. So rather than being at a state level, this is now at a federal level. And the new guidelines that were issued this March basically require all states to inform women that have dense breasts about their breast density and that they need to talk to their providers about what additional testing may benefit them. It also gave the FDA authority to really monitor compliance with this new regulation. So it actually builds on the Mammography Quality Standards Act that was passed in 1992. The Mammography Quality Standards Act really sets specific standards for all mammogram facilities. But in 1992, breast density was not really understood in terms of how it influenced the accuracy of mammography or breast cancer risk. Mm -hmm. So the new FDA guidelines are really bringing mammography facilities up to date. And thankfully, we don't have to wait for states that never pass this legislation to do that because all facilities now will be required to report breast density. Wow. Definitely important factor that even with the challenges of dense breast tissue, it starts with a mammogram and that can also help you 
decide on a plan to detect or prevent breast cancer. Correct. Doctor, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Gretchen Arendt is a surgical oncologist with the University of Colorado Cancer Center. We also spoke with Christina Soames from the Colorado Breast Cancer Awareness Foundation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The easiest way to make an impact through a transfer of appreciated stocks is to have your broker electronically transfer the stock from your account to ours, which may also come with tax benefits. Learn more on the support page at CPR.org. Soccer season is getting underway for high school girls in Colorado. And for club teams, which is where you'll find most of the state's best young players on weekends. This past Saturday in Loveland, girls from the Casa Soccer Club played their first game of the season. Like other club teams, Casa gives these girls extra coaching and they'll generally face tougher competition than on their school teams. Unlike other clubs, Casa was founded with the goal of helping to draw more Latinas and Latino student athletes to soccer and to help them thrive in the sport. Camilla Galvin is 14. She says she appreciates being around people from similar backgrounds. A lot of them mix in Spanish on the sidelines or in the game. You can just be like yourself in the field, and it's like pretty fun because I've been playing since I was little, so I have like a love for the sport. Alexa Signs is also 14 and is from Commerce City. Uh, I feel like everyone gets treated the same. There's no like favorites. There's no like unfairness. Like everyone gets the right playing time, and everyone just gets treated the same. Maribalia Avalos founded CASA, and she too was on the sidelines taking in Saturday's game. Ooh. Oh, that was Ruby? That was nice. It was a very nice save by the goalie, too. They play year-round, but Avalos says playing indoors in the winter isn't quite the same. To come out here and uh, see them play out here is, even though it's so cold right now, uh, it's exciting and fun. And I know how much they love it. So it's, it's great to be here. It's her 15th year running CASA. The club includes girls and boys teams starting as young as four through high school. Some of the girls playing today have been with CASA for eight years, which means they were about six years old when they started. Their parents have been together that long, too like Stacy Bogan. It really has become family. It's, it's been an incredible experience, and we couldn't be more grateful to be part of it. CASA founder Maribalia Avalos is here to talk more with me about the club and her vision for more diversity in youth sports. Hi, Maribalia. Hello, Chandra. How are you? So I have to ask, did the girls win the game Saturday? Oh, yes, they did. 3-1. It was a great game. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> now, why did you create the Casa Soccer Club? Like, what need were you trying to fill? I wanted to make sure our kids had the opportunity to be seen. And I know that soccer uh, definitely changed my life. And I was able to get an education, not only through soccer, but obviously you had to keep your good grace, right? And um, it did a lot for me. So I wanted to give that same opportunity to other kids in my community. And you also wanted this to be a gateway to a free college education, like through scholarships. Right, right. That is the main goal, right? Uh, creating the program, that has been the main goal right from the beginning, and it continues to be the main goal is, hey, let's 
make sure we get an education. And if we had to use soccer as a tool or a pathway together, let's do. And you also want to get them in front of recruiters so that they can get that attention. Right. I mean, some of our kids are very talented, uh, like Alex. Alex just went to U14 ID camp for the USA national team, so that's mm. pretty amazing. Yeah. So we want them to get as much, as much exposure as we can get them. So tell us more about your experience with soccer. So you played in college, right? I did. I did. <laughs> and you played at Adams State after yes. moving to the U.S. from Mexico when you were 14? Yes. I, I, I was a couple months from turning 15. But yes, I, um, I started playing in high school. I really had not played before. And then I was able to use those four years of high school uh, to earn a college scholarship. What was the experience like? <laughs> well, let's say I was in my freshman year in high school mm. playing like a four-year-old. Didn't know what I was. <laughs> uh, didn't know what I was doing. Just chasing the ball. Uh, didn't understand the language. Didn't understand uh, what the coach was yelling at me. But I understood <laughs> that I had to get the ball, so I was running out of the ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you got that down. <laughs> now, what do you hope for these players? Like, what do you hope will happen after they play with Casa? God, my biggest dream for these players is for them to accomplish whatever goal they have put up for themselves. And the bigger the goal, the better. Uh, I think you can accomplish anything if you actually put in the work. And these kids are passionate. Uh, I believe that they will become good leaders by... Um, Playing a sport, it just teaches you so much about leadership. And so many of these kids are able to do that. And that's the greatest goal when it comes to what we do. It's like, yes, we want them to go to college. That's our main goal, right? But at the end of the day, when you do that, you want to create great leaders in our community. That is the ultimate goal. So going to college and getting into education and playing your favorite sport, fantastic uh, and then after that what you do after that in life give it back uh, help others become great leaders too and with that um, it's all about lifting others mm -hmm. well speaking of college both of the athletes we met in the introduction to this story Camilla and Alexa said they hope to play in college Oh, yes. And, and it, we do want them to be their mentality, right? And if we had to use soccer as a tool to get them to be thinking about college, fine. It, it doesn't matter what tool you use as long as they are thinking about their future and getting a higher education. Because... Education is the ultimate goal at the end of the day. No. Why would you say the connection between soccer and college is so important? You know, for me, it's just being able to give you something to look forward to and knowing that you're going to college and you can make friends quickly because you are in a sports team. And when you're in a sports team, it's very easy to... Uh, just have friends in general mm. and keep you engaged and being able to feel comfortable um, with your peers and uh, what you're doing. And because going into college, just like anything else, right, when it's new, it's kind of scary. Mm. 
But if you are going to it knowing that you're going to have a group with you, right? And you're going to have that support, not only of the players, but the coaches, um, I think is uh, a great, again, tool mm-hmm. to keep them thinking about yes, I want to do that. I want to play in college and I want to have that opportunity and that experience. Yeah, of course we think about the sportsmanship, but the social aspect is very important. Right. So CASA gives kids from similar backgrounds to yours access to stiffer competition, additional coaching, and perhaps also getting them on the radar of colleges as we (laughs) talked about. What do you feel CASA does differently from other club teams? Oh my goodness, many things. But uh, one of the main things is that I think we keep it affordable. We make sure that our community can afford um, to play. Because in this country, and it's sad to say it, but it's true, in this country you had a pay to play. Mm. And and that is every sport, right? but my biggest goal is to make sure we keep it affordable for our community and those kids that obviously, if they're not in anywhere else, like right from the get-go, it's because um, they couldn't afford those prices, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes we were missing. I know that's why I created Casa. I know we were missing and on those opportunities because they couldn't afford it. And... Um, Having the program and being able to open doors to our community, our kids, um, it's just uh, something that I'm very proud of. Now, you speak of your community. What portion of the players now are Latino or Latina? And why is it so important that you draw that demographic to the sport? I would say it's about 80%. Uh, mm-hmm. I do love missing cultures, which is <laughs> one of my biggest goals. I want to be everything, right? Uh, when you open the doors to everyone and uh, be welcoming of everyone, I think that's the best best thing you can do in, in general with everything you do. Um, when it comes to welcoming uh, everyone to the club is just like, do your best and um, feel at home. And that's, and that's why it's called Casa. Is uh, You know, you want to feel at home. You want to feel comfortable. You want to feel like you belong. Speaking of keeping it going, from what <laughs> I understand, you don't get paid for your work with Casa and neither do your coaches. How do you all keep this going? <laughs> because we have the most amazing people being part of it. And our coaches, not only our coaches, but our managers and everybody that's part of the program. I think the biggest thing is that we came into this um, wanting to make a difference. And um some of our coaches are so amazing. They not only volunteer their time, but they go on and be on for their players. Uh, and um, I I can name so many coaches that just do so much for their players and um, team managers. And our whole community, I think once you're in it, you see it. All you want to do is be part of it and help each other out. Now, you mentioned the coaches. So... What is your approach to soccer overall? And do your coaches take, say, a certain point of view on how to play the game? You know, um, 
one of the biggest things when it comes to uh, playing the game is that we don't want them to be robots. We don't want to teach them exactly like, now you pass the ball, now you take the shot, now do you do this? No, we want them to be creative because this is a sport that is all art and you're constantly creating. And um, it's not a sport that has set place, right? So... Um, we want them to be free and play their game and show their skills. Um, so our biggest thing is like, depends how, what talents we know about each player, then we make sure they become even bigger by uh, pushing them to be better. And when they're in the field, it's like, be yourself, just, just open up and play your game. Um, and sometimes when you give that to kids, especially, is play your game. I have confidence in you. Believe in mm. yourself and get up there and just do you. Do your game. <laughs> do you. I love it. <laughs> so you've been running the club for 15 years and you've seen some of these kids since elementary school go off to college. Mm. Have you had any players go pro? Um, and what about this dream of fulfilling um college scholarships has that happened oh my god most definitely not necessarily pro uh we have a kiddo right now i really believe in him and i believe that he will make a pro and that's to you alex um but i i definitely college stories many college stories um i can say very quickly at, a, at the top of my head jesus and rodrigo graduated from duke university and they're doing amazing. Mm. Uh, <laughs> now we have um, Jari. Uh, she she graduated college. She played college. Uh, now she is, came back to Colorado, and now she's coaching a high school team, uh, Kennedy, the girls' high, high school team at Kennedy, and she's ready to go to college and get her master's. So hey. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, super proud of her and the fact that she wanted to come back and give to her community and kind of like give back what she got mm. because uh, she always talks about how much cost it did for her and how it encouraged her to be who she is today. But I'm even more proud that she's now doing it for others. Like, that's amazing. That's the whole goal, right? That you pick up... Uh, young kids to become great leaders and then they do it for others the same thing that we do for them now they're doing it for others that's the whole goal of our community and i couldn't be more proud well i can tell because uh, <laughs> i can look at your face you're literally beaming as you talk about these students so pretty awesome so has there been a moment over the past 15 years where you've seen really clearly what you're trying to accomplish with this program payoff Oh, yes. <laughs> Most definitely. Of course, uh, uh, many kids that graduate college uh, and not only have uh, a great education now, but they also are giving back like the examples I give. I have kids that I coach. I, this makes me feel old. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we go, I have to ask, are you going to watch the World Cup? Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Come on. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, is it going to be a huge watch party? <laughs> uh, yes, we can definitely make it that all the time. Yes. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Maribelia Avalos founded the Casa Football Club. Football, of course, is also known as soccer here in the States, which seeks to get more Latinas and Latino 
Latinos into playing soccer. She serves as its executive director. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When Susan Anderson got off the train in Fraser in 1909, she brought with her two things she picked up in Michigan, a medical degree and tuberculosis. She had tried to set up a medical practice in Cripple Creek, but women doctors were not welcome. Denver and Greeley were equally unreceptive. By the time she crossed the Continental Divide, Susan Anderson was very ill and hoped the clean mountain air would help. It did, and soon she built a medical reputation, first among a few women who brought children and eventually husbands. They called her Doc Susie. Traveling on foot, ski, snowshoe, and by train, she saved many lives and brought more into the world. By some accounts, she delivered more than half the population of Fraser. Her home still stands there, and the street bears her name. Doc Susie Avenue. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company. We've been hearing a lot about infrastructure investments from lawmakers, but where is all that money going in Colorado? And why aren't we seeing improvements already? These were some of the Colorado Wonders questions CPR News received about the bipartisan infrastructure law. Our Washington, D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim, has some answers. We've all had this experience at one point or another. You're driving along, and then you hear thump, the sound of hitting a pothole, fearing the damage you just might have done to your car. So with all this talk about infrastructure funding, why aren't all those pesky potholes being fixed? That was one question from a listener. They're going to get filled uh, when his city council or his mayor, when the local people decided the time to fill it. That's Democratic Senator John Hickenlooper. He got an earful about potholes when he was mayor of Denver. And he was part of a group of senators who negotiated the 2021 infrastructure law. The way we structured the bipartisan infrastructure bill was to deliver resources to states and to as large an extent as possible, let them play the primary role in allocating and creating priorities. The law reauthorized the Surface Transportation Act for five years and has, on top of that, $550 billion in new infrastructure spending around the country. Shoshana Liu, executive director for the Colorado Department of Transportation, estimates they received about $1.4 billion so far and hope to get much more. We're shooting for as much as we can possibly get. <laughs> we're we're going to uh, shoot for the moon. They're funneling a lot of that money so far to a statewide list of priority transportation projects. Think I-70's Floyd Hill, which received a $100 million grant. But the infrastructure law goes way beyond roads and bridges. It's airports, broadband, plugging orphaned oil wells, water projects, and more. Winnie Sackleberg is the Interior Department's infrastructure coordinator. She points out the law includes funding for something Colorado has a lot of, natural infrastructure, like watershed restoration. Restoring that kind of habitat is part of the infrastructure law. It's a broad definition of infrastructure that includes the natural infrastructure, not just built infrastructure. Put it all together, more than $3 billion has been announced thus far for Colorado from the law for communities across the state, such as Alamosa. The town was awarded a $4.7 million grant for a pedestrian bridge. Alamosa Mayor Ty Coleman. It's been taking over two decades for us to get to this point of uh, actually making the dream of having this pedestrian bridge and the connectivity a reality uh, in our San Luis Valley community. Which brings us to another question asked by a listener. How will infrastructure funds be distributed across the state? And how much will the Western Slope get? 
So far, more than $79 million has been allocated for Western Slope communities. Glenwood Springs Mayor Jonathan Godis says they teamed up with nearby cities to get a $24 million grant to expand transit from Glenwood Springs to Grand Junction. He thinks it's important that rural communities get a fair slice of the infrastructure funding pie. My hope is that as these funds get parceled out, uh, there's a strong view of let's let's make sure this was equitable to rural and urban Colorado. Godis is excited because infrastructure funding is something Congress put off for decades. And for him, the money isn't necessarily for something new and shiny, but just catching up. This is the foundation issue of your house that you know you have to deal with. That side of the house is just like keeps getting a little bit worse, but I just can't ever find that money to do it because it just keeps getting more and more expensive and I don't know what to do and I'm feeling helpless. With three more years left of funding to come, there are some big dreams out there, like perhaps working to make Cottonwood pass a year-round alternative to I-70. For his part, Senator Hickenlooper is hoping the end result of all this funding is simple. What the ultimate goal is, is progress. We want people to feel that that their future is better. So it may not be filling potholes, but it is filling infrastructure gaps across the state. And while you might not be seeing the results for some time, you will be hearing about them as lawmakers who voted for the infrastructure bill continue to tout it as they announce money coming into the state and as they attend groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings in the years to come. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. What do you wonder about when it comes to living in Colorado? whether it's a question about policy and politics or a question about landmarks and state history. Send us your thoughts at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. That's CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. And we may answer your question on air and online. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Catch Colorado Matters anytime, wherever you get your podcast and online at CPR.org. And we know it's not always possible to listen every day, so be sure to tune in Sunday mornings at 10 for best of segments from the week. You're with CPR News and KRCC.